Amen. If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 2 tonight. And you can see the events leading up to Paul's writing of 1 Thessalonians in Acts chapter 16 and chapter 17, where Acts chapter 16, Paul is going and he's preaching the gospel. He's teaching about this new king, Jesus. And there's some people who are elites who are, whether they're religious or political, they're not liking that. And so they end up putting Paul in prison. They don't take him to court. They just lock him up. And while he's locked up, they learn that he's a Roman citizen. And that was a really bad move. And so uh, they say, hey, will you please leave? Just, just leave our town. And Paul goes, I'll leave, but you need to come apologize to me face to face first. Just rad. And so they come and they do that. And Paul leaves. And after he leaves Philippi and was treated pretty badly there, he comes to Thessalonica. And here he's teaching and preaching the same way he was in um, Philippi. But the people, the religious elites at Thessalonica are not dealing with that very well. And so they get all riled up. They reject Jesus as their king, and they want the preaching of this king to just stop. And so they go to Paul's Airbnb, the guy who's hosting him, and they can't find Paul there. They search the house. So they take Jason, who's the guy who's hosting Paul, to court. And this is what they say. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down, you can find this in Acts 17, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that that there is another king, Jesus. We can never forget that we have a king who has turned the entire world upside down. And he has called us as his people to participate with him in turning that whole world upside down. I had a woman come up to me on Sunday, and she expressed that she was concerned and she was worried. She was anxious that when she stands before God, is her good deeds, is the good things that she's done going to outweigh the bad things that she has done? And she's, she doesn't know, and, and she's lived a, a life of, of maybe not making the best decisions. She's the, the sweetest lady. She's been coming here for a few weeks, and she is really worried and anxious about it. She's worried that if she stands before God, he's going to see all of her bad choices, all her bad decisions, all the things that she wishes she hadn't done, every angry comment, everything that she's done that has hurt someone intended or unintended, and that it's not going to outweigh the good things that she has done ever since meeting Jesus, and she's worried about it. And maybe you have felt that at some point or at some level, because that's how the world works. The world's system is if you do good things, you'll get a paycheck. If you don't do the good things, you're not going to get a paycheck and you might lose your job. It's if you want to get admitted into that school, you're going to have to do really well and have a track record of of really good performance. And you're going to have to outperform other people. Not everyone gets in there, just the best and the brightest and those who are in powerful positions are going to get in. That's our entire world system. Jesus came to turn that world completely upside down, where there's this video going around last week that I loved, where the preacher was basically just saying the story of the man on the cross next to Jesus, that there's a thief on the cross. The Romans used the cross as this very visual, do not follow this man. 
And so there was lots of people who got crucified, not just Jesus. You get crucified for murder. You get crucified for stealing. You get crucified for anything contrary to what the Romans wanted their citizens to do. And it was a picture of you do not follow him. If you follow in the footsteps of this man, you will end up just like this man. And so there's a thief on the cross next to Jesus. And that man who's lived a life of not doing good things, of making all the wrong decisions, turns to Jesus and he says, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And this video going around was just sharing the perspective that he thinks must have been the angels when that man comes to heaven. That man breathes his last breath, wakes up in heaven, and the angel goes, what are you doing here? He goes, I don't know. And he goes, well, let me check our book. What temple did you go to? Dude, I've never been in a temple. I haven't been in a temple since I was five. Okay, um, well, who is your high priest? I don't even know what that means. Okay, well, certainly you must know something about doctrine. Do you know, what, what, can you tell me your knowledge of the doctrine of scripture? Not even a little bit. The angel will go, well, what are you doing here? And he'll, his response would only be, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's what gets you in. When you stand before Jesus, when you stand before God the Father, it's simply, did the man on the middle cross say you could be here? Jesus has been given all authority, all power, all judgment, and that's what gets you in. Not your good deeds, not your good intentions, not what you have memorized. It's the man on the middle cross said I could come. And so Paul is preaching that this Jesus is the king, is God, who's come not to be domineering and say, bend to my will, do the right things, and then I'll let you in, then I'll love you, then I'll accept you. Instead, it's a God who comes offering forgiveness and reconciliation and a fullness of life and a fullness of joy, just desiring that people would come and follow him and believe in him. And the Bible declares that if you call Jesus your king, if you call him Lord, and you believe in a historical death, burial, and resurrection of your king, the man in the middle cross said you can come. That's what gets you in. And so Paul is going around preaching and teaching that. That's something that we as believers, I don't think could ever talk enough about, ever be reminded enough about, ever meditate enough on. It's the most important thing about you is what you believe about Jesus. And Paul is going around preaching and teaching that. And the world, those who are living in the world, those who reject Jesus as their king, hate it and need it to stop and want him to stop. And so Paul has been experiencing real persecution. Paul has been experiencing real issues from the elites, both political and religious, who want this preaching of King Jesus to stop. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 picks up with Paul just reminding the Thessalonians about the issues that he has faced while teaching about Jesus and about this good news, this gospel. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1 says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Did Paul experience conflict so far? Totally. He got thrown in jail, Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 17, the Thessalonians they force Paul to leave. They actually take bribes or they take money as collateral from Jason saying, don't let Paul come back here. We're keeping this from you. And then if you read Acts chapter 17, it's kind of funny. Paul goes to a neighboring city and starts preaching there. 
the Thessalonican Jews hear about that and follow him to get him to leave that place. Like they're after him. They're, Paul has just experienced a ton of shame. He's experienced a ton of suffering while at Philippi, and yet he's got this boldness to continue to preach and to declare Jesus as king, even in the midst of all of that. If you're a believer in Jesus and you share Jesus being king with people, I think you and I should expect conflict. You and I should expect to face that when we go to preach about our king and share about Jesus and what he's done in our life. There's a reason that the Bible over and over again describes this life as a war, because there's a real enemy who wants to steal and to kill and to destroy. And there's a reason that the Bible will often use imagery for believers in Jesus that you're like soldiers, that you need to be armored up, that you need to be ready in and out of season, that you are pushing back darkness, that we need to be trained, that we need to be on guard. When you share the gospel, the good news of our king, there's going to be conflict. If there was for Jesus, if there was for Paul, there would be for you and I. If you're not experiencing conflict in your life, in that way, are you sharing Jesus? Are you, is the most important thing that you know a focal point of your life that people would know, oh, that guy's just always talking about Jesus. That's Paul. When people look at Paul and he comes in, they go, that guy will not stop talking about Jesus. I heard Paul's in the neighboring city. I can guarantee he's talking about Jesus. We need to go stop him because everyone knows that's who he is. Is your king, is the gospel of Jesus a focal point of your life? You know, I think, if there's conflict from it because the enemy will go after people who are in the game, who are actively pushing back darkness, who are actively sharing about their King Jesus. And so Paul continues in verse three. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Some people claimed that Paul was going city to city preaching because he was just interested in money. He just wanted to gain a bunch of followers or wanted people to think that he was just awesome with, to have this new philosophy. And Paul is like, I'm not getting any of those things. It's kind of like there's that joke going around of like, oh, they only paid me $50,000. Oh, I only got paid $1,000. And the last guy goes, you guys are getting paid? Paul's almost like that. Like, no, I'm not getting those things. In fact, I'm getting treated pretty poorly. I, bad things are happening to me. I'm not doing this for money. I'm not doing it because I want people to like me. I'm doing it to please God. I'm doing it because I want you to know this king. And there were people going around teaching and preaching because they wanted money and because they wanted people's approval and they wanted followers. They wanted people to be impressed with them. In fact, Paul will write later in his life to his young protege, his apprentice, the, the kid that he had spent the most time with investing in. At the end of his life, right before he's about to be beheaded by King Nero, he'll write a letter to Timothy. It's 2 Timothy. And in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, this is what he writes to him. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Has that happened today? Isn't it so easy to accumulate up teachers to fit whatever you already believe, whatever you want to hear? Like I think in this last year, you can find anybody to agree with anything. Someone has a platform saying the things that you either really want to hear and were searching for or the complete opposite of what you were wanting to hear and searching for. You're just getting conflicting information everywhere. It happens in politics. It happens in what's going on in the world. And it happens with Jesus even. Like when I broke my leg, I had a lot of downtime. And I did the thing I swore I would never do. I downloaded TikTok. (laughs) Maybe you've been there. And there's a whole Jesus section on TikTok. I didn't know that. And I clicked on it and I'm, I'm listening. And this, this woman is sharing about something she read in her Bible and she's, she's quoting it. And I'm like, I've never heard that. And so I go and go ahead, I look up where she says it's at. And it, when Moab presented himself, when he wears it, that's not what the, she said. Like, it's not even in the Bible. Like she better, she might, would have been better off quoting it. Like this comes from second opinions, chapter six. Like she was just completely teaching what people wanted the Bible to say, not what the Bible says. And so as you go through TikTok or whatever your social media is, if it's Facebook or Instagram or even YouTube, you can find countless people teaching just countless heresies whatever you want to hear, whether or not it's according to sound doctrine, whether or not it's truth. And maybe you've seen pastors or teachers who they're, they're purely motivated by greed and you can see it. Like they say, you're not blessed because you're not giving enough. If you want to be blessed more by God, you should give to, you should prove it to God by giving to my platform. And then together we'll see God bless you. And you'll know that God is blessing you when despite all you're giving to me, you'll still have left some left over. You guys ever heard pastors preach like that on the TV or on YouTube? I hear it all the time. And it just makes me cringe. You're like, no, I don't think so, man. Or how about flattery and acceptance where people just want to teach what is going to make people like them, whether or not it's true. Like they could teach part things that are partly true. Like God is love. Oh, totally. And love is love. Well, where are you going with that? God just wants you to be happy. And God just wants you to love and to love people. And if that means that you, as a man, want to love a man, or you as a woman want to love a woman, or that you want to marry eight women and that this woman wants to marry three men, that's fine. Whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you flourish. Or, hey, you know what? You're just not happy in your marriage. God wants happy people. And right now you're two unhappy people. So instead of doing the hard work of seeking reconciliation and forgiveness and working through problems, man, wouldn't it be better just to be two happy people separate? Like there are teachers who will teach stuff like that, stuff that people want to hear, something that will fit their preconceived decisions and motivations just to make them go, okay, I got got God's stamp of approval. Or God wants you to be authentic to who you are, even if it's not how God biologically made you. Like you will find people teaching that this is what God's kingdom is like. And you can find countless people teaching to this younger generation who's got burning ears, who wants to hear what they want to hear, not necessarily the truth. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter five, he talks about what his kingdom is like. 
If you want to know what God's kingdom is like, it's probably best to go to God and not some dude on YouTube or on social media. And this is what Jesus says his kingdom is like. It's in Matthew chapter five. He's, he's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. He's got these crowds coming to him. He's got just tons of people standing right there. And he says, this is who my kingdom is for. These are the people who inherit it. And he says, it's those who are poor in spirit. It's those who are mourning, those who are meek, those who see injustice in the world and they're just hungry and they're thirsty for righteousness. They say, I just want to see that change. Those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who have been persecuted and rejected, that's who my kingdom is for. And for the crowd in front of Jesus, it's all those people. And they're like, that's me. Yes. Okay. That God's kingdom has got a place for me. And Jesus follows it by saying in your salt and your light that you bring flavor to everything that you're involved in and your light in darkness that you illuminate and that you, you push back what's evil. And all these people are hearing it and saying, God's got a purpose for me. He's got a place for me. He's got a plan for me. And you just think there's this excitement, but then Jesus follows it up by saying immediately after that, that he did not come to abolish the law but he came to fulfill it. And then not a dot is going to pass away from the law. And that if you try to lessen God's law and lessen what sin is, then you're going to be less in God's kingdom. But for those who follow God's law and teach others to do the same are going to be great in his kingdom. And you go, well, what does that mean, Jesus? And so he expands and he talks about anger. He goes, dude, it's awesome that you haven't murdered someone. But if you have ever been angry with your brother, and you've been in the wrong, the God who searches the heart sees your heart as, you might as well have just murdered him. And so if you've ever driven on Redwood Highway between 3 and 6 p.m., you are a serial killer. That's what your heart looks like. Because I've been there sometimes where I feel like at about Dairy Queen, I might as well just pull over and walk home because I'll get there faster. And then I won't be angry because at least I can look at the ground and move, right? Jesus goes on and talks about lust. He goes, hey, it's great that you've never had sex outside of marriage. But if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, well, the God who searches the heart, your heart looks like someone who's committed adultery. So Jesus then, after he says, you've got this kingdom, it's got a place for you. I've got plans and purpose for you. He then shares the weight of what sin really looks like. And he finishes after going through anger, lust, divorce, promises, retaliation, loving your enemies. Jesus ends it by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter my kingdom. You just think, you just go, oh, bummer. Because everyone sitting there has at least one of those things to go, I struggle with that. That's been an issue for me. Oh no, my good deeds don't outweigh my bad deeds. I, I, there's no way that my righteousness ex exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. What am I going to do? So Jesus brings to weight all the burden of, and how heavy their sin is. So that they have to sit there and go, how then, Jesus? How am I going to enter heaven? I think real teachers don't make light of your sin. Real teachers make you face your sin and then lead you to the way out of that. And Jesus makes a path out of that. And Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, the reason that that text is so controversial is because in the garden, Jesus is sweating blood and he's praying to the father. And he says, if there's any other way that people can get to heaven, if there's any way, if there's any amount of sincere effort and righteousness and good deeds they can do, I don't want to go to the cross. 
I don't want to suffer the wrath. I don't want to experience separation from the Father. If there's any other way. And the fact that Jesus goes and dies on the cross tells you there is no other way. The only path is through Jesus. And so any teacher who makes light of your sin and says, oh no, it's fine. It's all good. They make light of the crucifixion of the fact that that weight, the weight of your sin was so heavy that Jesus, that God had to die for it. They make light of the crucifixion. They make it lesser. And so Paul There's people who have huge platforms seeking glory, seeking gold, seeking fame. Paul is saying, I'm not one of those people. Paul said, you know I'm not one of those people because there's a lot of people who hate me and I've been hurt by sharing truth with you and I don't care and I'm gonna keep sharing truth with you no matter what happens. And so he finishes, he follows it up in uh, verse seven where he says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse eight, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. When we do share the gospel, it needs to be so layered in grace and mercy. It's gotta be truthful. Yeah, totally. Sin is evil. God does not want you to live in that. It's gonna hurt you. It's gonna hurt your kids. It's gonna be destructive but it's also very, very kind. Like, I think all Christians can agree that the gospel needs to be shared. I think everyone can agree on that. Where there might be some disagreement is the methods, the way we share Christianity, the way that we share the gospel. It's kind of like we can all agree that kids need to be educated. We can all agree that kids need to learn stuff as they get older, but we might disagree on the method, whether it's public school or private school or homeschool or charter school or just going out into the woods and learning nature. If you go into a women's ministry meeting and you declare this is the right way to raise your kids in education, you're going to get punched. You're going to experience Paul level persecution. Like there's going to be a throw down between the public school mom and the homeschool mom. And only one person is going to leave the ring. All right. We can all agree that that can happen, but our methods, we might disagree on them. And so when I see people on the street and they, they're holding up signs and they're trying to use shame and guilt and sin to win people over to Jesus, for me, it, it really bums me out because I don't think that's the right method. And Paul right here, he's saying the way that he shared the gospel, it was layered in a lot of grace and a lot of mercy, though they were gentle like a mother taking care of her own children. That, yeah, there's correction, there's redirection, but it's so filled with love and with kindness and with mercy. If you have kids, you know that, that you raise your kids and you've got just the biggest plans for them. You're so excited for them. And then they just do the most absurd things. And if you love them, well, you're gonna correct them. And you're gonna say, hey, we don't do that. We're going to do something different. If you don't love them, you continue to let them do their crazy sinfulness, and then they're going to spin out and not do well. In the same way, when we share the gospel with people, it's this this gentleness, it's this mercy-filled, but it's also we're corrective, we're we're redirecting. It's filled with love. It's filled with this very personal relationship of I really care about you. I want to see you do well. He expands on it a little bit more in verse 9 where he says, For you remember, brothers, 
our labor and toil. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So he uses these two very specific and very intimate relationship-like illustrations for them to think on. Like a mother, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, we were gentle among you. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to, work, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Sharing the gospel with someone is not an indifferent matter. It's not just telling them the story one time. It's a deep, incredible, incredibly personal matter. It's very relational. It's not just sharing something one time. It's sitting down and walking with someone. It's like walking and raising your kids. It's this daily redirection. It's this daily encouragement, exhortation, and charging. It's like when Paul says, like a father, you're supposed to do these three things. He He uses exhortation, encouragement, and charging them. For me, when I think of exhortation, I kind of had it in this box of synonyms with encouragement. And I don't know if, if for you, like, I think those mean the same thing. So I, I looked at this word, I, I looked at it in the Greek, how Paul would have wrote it, and just the semantic range of how that word can be translated. And the semantic range of it is, is of this word exhort, is it's urging, it's comforting, and it's pleading with someone. So it's like if you're walking with someone and you're telling them, hey, come on, let's do this. Come with me. Hey, we're going to do something different. I don't want you to keep living in that way. I don't want you to keep hurting in that way. I don't want to see your kids keep spinning out in that way. Come on, come with me. Do you see how personal that is? That pleading with someone, that urging them, but it's in a comforting way of, hey, come on, Come with me. Let's, let's do something different. Jesus has got such bigger plans for you. Jesus has got such bigger hope for you, such a bigger joy for you. Paul says that that's how we're supposed to be as we walk with someone and sharing the gospel with them. He says you're supposed to encourage. It's really hard to be a Christian and to stand up for what is right in a world that hates Jesus and hates what is right and hates what is true. And it's super hard to do it if you're alone. I think about like the disciples when Jesus was taken away to go be crucified, they all got separated. And Peter, he's standing by himself and he keeps just getting asked, hey, aren't you one of them? Hey, don't you follow that guy? And three times he denies him because no, I've never seen him. I don't know him. I, I, I don't know who you're talking about. It's really hard when you're alone, when you're separated from God's people. But then I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just three dudes in a world that hates God. And they've got this giant idol, and they made a point to where when the trumpet is blown, every person will turn and worship this idol. And these three guys just say, no, we're not going to do that. That's not what we do. And they get brought before the king, and the king gives them an opportunity. He says, hey, if you guys... Maybe you didn't hear the trumpet. You might be deaf. Maybe you didn't understand. Let me explain to you the laws and how we do things here. He said, we'll blow the trumpet one more time. If you just bow down to the idol, 
We can pretend this never happened. We can all move on. You can go home. And these three guys stand together. And it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, just because I think it's got such attitude. They say to the king, the most powerful man on earth at that time, they say, our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your idol. And the king is enraged. And you know the story. He makes the furnace hotter. And up until the moment that they get thrown into the flames, they're certain this is the end. But they're in it together. They're in it together. They've, as they've decided together, you know what? This is something that we don't do. And any moment that any one of them may have been faltering in their heart, they've got a buddy next to him who's saying, nope, this is what we do. It's so important to have godly people around you that can encourage you, that you can say, dude, this is what I'm really worried about. This is what's happening at work. This is what they're asking me to do. This is what my friend group is telling me the truth is, and I don't think it is, who can say, hey, we don't do that here. That even if the world demands you're going to bow down and do this, even if they're going to take our lives, our God's able to save us. But even if he doesn't choose to save us, we're still not going to bow down to the world system. We're not going to do it. And finally, charged. Walk in a manner worthy of God. The gospel is not do good and God will love you. The gospel is God has loved you, so do good. Do you see that? It's not, hey, do good things and God will accept you. God will want you. God is going to be a part of your team only if you prove that you deserve to be on the team. It's Jesus gave his life for you. Even when you rejected him, we're living in rebellion to him. He loves you so much. Accept him and then do good. Walk in a manner worthy of God. The best leaders, they lead up front. If you have people that you're walking with and you want them to follow Jesus, the best leaders, they lead up front. Just like Jesus set an example for all of his followers. This is how I want you to live. Walk in a manner worthy of God. This is how I want you to forgive. This is how I want you to bring healing into relationships. This is how I want you to be generous. This is how I want you to be self-sacrificing. And we, as we share the good news of our King, we need to be exhorting our brothers. We need to be encouraging them and we need to charge them to walk in a manner worthy of God. Do better. Raise the bar, not only on yourself, but on the people that you're walking with. Raise the bar. Expect more. Seek God. Ask him for power to do better. Ask him to help you in those situations that you're struggling with. Say, God, I want to do better. You want better for me. I want to do better. And then when you're talking to your friends, Jesus wants better for you. I want better for you. Help me help you. Let's do better. Let's walk in a manner worthy of God. In verse 13, Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So notice what he says. He says, you received the word. You accepted it. It's at work in you as you become imitators of the churches in Christ Jesus, even though you're going to suffer. He says, you received, you accepted, and then you work. 
It's not you work and then you'll be accepted and then you can receive the good things from God. It's the opposite of how every world system works. Jesus literally turns the world upside down. He says to you and to me and to every person, hey, come and receive. Hey, accept it. And then become imitators, be at work. It's the opposite of how every system works. Our God has come to turn the world upside down and he wants to partner with you and me in spreading that to others. You receive the word, you accept it, and it becomes at work in you believers. In, in verse 15, it continues the idea from verse 14. Verse 14 ends with, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, 15, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. So Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he knows that the Jews who are in Thessalonica are actively against the gospel, enough to where they would travel to a neighboring town and accost Paul there. So you can just imagine the pain and the hurt and the situations going on for the believers in Jesus at Thessalonica, that they're experiencing very real persecution, that they're losing jobs, that they're losing friends, that they may even be losing their lives in their pursuit of following Jesus and sharing the good news of our God. And you just imagine just the frustration and the anger and, and the, the, there's no recourse, there's nothing you can do, especially because they've got the politicians on their side, they could say, well, they're teaching another king and you know that Caesar says you're not allowed to say that. So there's nothing they can do about it. You can just imagine the frustration for when people you love get hurt. You want justice and you want vengeance. And Paul, I think he takes a moment to remember that wrath has come. That wrath has come and it's been poured out on Jesus that we have a God who's so serious about injustice, who's so serious about hating sin and people being hurt that he poured out his wrath on Jesus as proof that he's a God who takes it very seriously and he's not gonna let it go. He doesn't let sin go. And if you really believe in that God, who's so serious about sin that he would take it upon himself in that way, that when you and I see Jesus, we'll see him as being a lamb having just been slain. It allows you to not have to seek vengeance for everything. Because you and I, in our pursuit of justice, we don't always have the whole story. And we don't always get justice the way that we maybe should. So 83 years ago was 1938. 83 years ago from today was 1938. And there's a seven to eight-year-old girl who came home from school. And when she came home, her mom noticed that she was different. She's dejected. She wasn't talking. She was quiet. And mom kind of pressed her and said, what's going on? And the daughter said on her way home from school that one of the older boys in town sexually assaulted her behind the grocery store. And so you can just, as a parent, imagine the wave of anger 
and something has to happen. That's not right. We don't do that here. Not to my kid. And so this is in the South. They, they riled their neighbors up and their neighbors riled their neighbors up. And they found this boy and they didn't take him to court. They didn't get witnesses. They brought him to the center of town and they brutally beat this kid. And then they lynched him. And then that wasn't enough. They went to his family home and burnt the home down while mom and dad and his two little sisters watched. Okay, now that seven, seven to eight year old girl for her parents are probably thinking that's justice. We did it right. We got back at him. Now our whole community knows we don't do that here. Well, 83 years later, one week ago, that seven-year-old girl grew up and she was in a retirement home. And last week she, she died of COVID. And before she died, she felt she needed to confess something that had been burdening her and probably because she was worried that when she stood before God, she was worried that her good deeds wouldn't outweigh her bad deeds. So I need to get, I need to get this off my chest. I need to, to tell someone. And what she said is that the boy never touched her. That what happened is when she was at school, she saw his little sisters had prettier dresses than she did. And she made up a lie to get back at them. You and I don't always get justice right. We have a fraction of the story. And if you believe in a God who really sees everything and who hates sin, for a lot of Americans, for, for people who haven't experienced real injustice, stuff taken away from you, a kid taken away from you, land taken away from you, your property taken away at the hands of the government or the elite, and you have got no recourse, a God of wrath seems really harsh to us. But to someone who's got no recourse, no voice, no one they can go to for help. A God of justice who says, I'm going to make sure everything is accounted for is your only hope. And there's two people in this world. There are those who will be covered in Jesus's blood. That when God looks at them, he will see his wrath having been poured out on Jesus. And that every sin of theirs is completely and totally canceled out and accounted for. Or there will be those who are covered in their own blood. And I think you and I, as believers, when we're facing real, terrible, hard injustice, we need to be layering in everything so much grace and so much mercy because we don't know the whole story. And for those who are in the world, those who are in the world system, those who reject Jesus as their king, this is the closest to heaven they will ever be. But for you and I who believe in Jesus, who called Jesus king, this is the closest to hell you and I will ever be. And so when we face real rough situations in our life, when someone says things to us that's just harmful and it, and it tears at you, it's so much better to give it to God because God sees and God knows and God is going to make sure it's all accounted for. And you don't, it's not your job to get even. It's not your job to get the last word. You can trust, I have a God who's so serious about sin, he'll handle it better than me. I'm gonna trust him in it because maybe I don't know the whole story. I don't know what that person's going through. I don't know their perspective, but my God does and I'm gonna trust him in it because I know I have a king who's that serious about sin and he won't let it go. And in verse 17, he ends the chapter with, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, 
we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. What an interesting line, isn't it? But Satan hindered us. There's that war. There's a real war. There's a real enemy who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy and who wants to stop the spreading of the gospel. And if you are somebody who wants to partner with Jesus in turning the world upside down, you're going to experience that. You need to be prepared for that conflict. And verse 19, he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. What a statement that is. That this church, when he stands before the King Jesus, this church, these people, these are going to be his boasting. This is going to be his joy. I think when a new believer comes into church, that I know when I bring people, I have this thing in my head where I think, okay, if they can just hear Matt tell them about Jesus, they're going to give their life over. This is it. And then when I show up to church and I got my buddy here and I see the young guy get on stage and I go, it's Justin, dang it, in my heart, I feel that. Because I'm sitting there going the whole time, man, if, if it was Matt here, then they would have heard it and they would have changed this whole guy's life. And part of that's true, for sure. But when the new believer comes here, when someone who's not maybe from Edgewater or never been in church, I think we put an unrealistic burden on the person, person speaking. Where we think, okay, if, if he just says the right things, it's going to turn this whole person's world around. As if the relationship there is just sitting and looking straight ahead. There's a lot of side to side going on for the new person wondering, okay, is this a crew I want to be a part of? And in a large church like this, they're going to look over and they're going to see the person who played them on Facebook Marketplace. And they're going to see the realtor that was kind of scuzzy and, and did things they shouldn't have. They're going to see the person who's just posting divisive stuff nonstop. I think what Paul is saying is he's saying we should be a group of people that are mirroring Jesus so well that I'm going to boast my God about it. When the non-believer comes in and they look around, they go, this is a crew I want to be a part of. These are people that genuinely love each other. That's the guy who really cared for me. That guy changed my tire. I, he goes here. That there's this charge on us that, that people who come in, they should look around and they should say, this is a group of people I want to be a part of because we're at war and we're never off duty. Paul says, you're my joy and my crown. I can guarantee the person that you bring into church that you're hoping will hear just the right words. That person would rather see one good sermon lived out by you. It will do way more impact than hearing a thousand of the best sermons by the best preachers. Seeing Jesus lived out in your life will do more good, do more impact, do more for the kingdom than hearing the best sermon on earth would. Because if Jesus really is your king, if you've, ex if you've received the word, if you've accepted the word, and your life is being transformed by it, there should be fruit where your neighbors look and they, say, they see your world is completely upside down. They see so much forgiveness and grace and mercy in your life that 
it's compelling and, and part of their soul that's eternal, that God designed them to be in fellowship with the Lord Jesus is going to go, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want. That's who I want to be. We have to talk to him. I got to know him. Paul ends with that encouragement, that exhortation, that charge. Live in a manner worthy of God. You are my joy, the thing that I can boast in before Jesus. This week, let's be people who ask Jesus, who ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power that you need to live in a manner worthy of God. To be so forgiving when people say things to revile you and to persecute you and to hurt you, that when you stand up for truth and what is right and people come at you in aggressive ways, that you just remember how gracious and merciful Jesus has been to you and you can be gracious and merciful to those who hurt you. Let's be people who are just extraordinarily forgiving and generous and kind and gentle when we share the love of Jesus. Let's be people who exhort and encourage and charge our fellow believers to raise the bar, to follow Jesus closer every single day. Let's be people who walk in a manner worthy of God. So Jesus, we're so thankful to be called your people. I pray even today that we would be asking you to mold us and shape us more and more in the image of your son, Jesus, that we would allow you to be the potter and us the clay. I'm so thankful that your word is not like the things of this world. That's not something we have to earn or prove, but that we can receive and we can taste and see that you're good and we can accept your goodness and then we can let your goodness be at work in us. I'm so thankful that you've chosen the church to be the mechanism through which you're going to change the world, that you want to partner with us that you want to entrust to us the responsibility of sharing your word with our neighbors and with our coworkers and with our family. Help us to be faithful to that charge. Give us strength, Jesus. Give us courage. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I can hear your kids. Go get them. God bless you guys.